Well, this morning we conclude our trek through the fourth book of the Psalms, and in the timing we end one psalm short, but we'll come back eventually to to the Psalms. But um, today we come to Psalm 106, and next week begins Advent, and so we'll jump into Advent and, uh, and look at some text there, sticking with songs and psalms in preparation for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but today, Psalm 106, and we've been in these psalms now, these last few that have been these long recountings of things and the story of God's people and the glory of God revealed in creation. And today in Psalm 106, that same thing. We have the recounting of a story, a long recounting of a story by the psalmist. And this one, the bulk of this story is not very encouraging indeed. It's a, it's a heavy story that's told. It's a story of sin and rebellion. Not once, not one awful thing, but a cycle, a habit of sin and rebellion against God. I'm, I'm, I think to myself, when I, when I was thinking on this psalm for the sermon, my mind went to the way that, that people do eulogies, you know, and that they remember people when they pass. Uh, we do our best to remember well. Uh, we don't generally recount uh, all the horrible things that a person has done. And even when we remember people's groups, you know, when histories are written, um, whether it's church history, even whether it's American history, um, we tend, at least we have in the past, We've tended to tell the story with the highlights, of course, being uh, the good things that have been accomplished, the good things that have been done, the acts of heroism that have been manifested by the, you know, by the people of this group, either the church or our country or whatever. Um, And that's what makes this psalm so unbelievable and in a good way um, and unique is that here you have a leader, we're not told who, who wrote this psalm. We may assume it's David, but maybe that's not a maybe it's not a good assumption. But whoever it is, the psalmist, some some leader in Israel writes this psalm and takes the bulk of the psalm to tell us and reveal to the world all the warts of his people. The sins, the failings, the shameful. And just the way, and we'll look at some of this, the way that the psalmist records it, it, it it's shameful, the way that it's recorded, and, and just puts it out there um, and says, this is our story. Um, it's an amazing thing. It, it's, if, you, if you think about it for a second, I think you also will be in awe. Who would do that? Who would, who would tell the story with the highlight being? The warts and the flaws of a people. You're nervous to do that because you, th- you think well of your people, whether, again, whether it's the church, whether it's America, right? And, and you, you want to share in, in the glory of the thing and you, you want others to appreciate it as well and to join in and not to think poorly of it. And, and so, you, you, of course, we all have to mention that there were these, this little problem and that little problem in history, but for the most part, the story's pretty good. But that's not what the psalmist does here. The psalmist just pretty much exposes 
the whole, well, the story, much of the story of Israel and her sins. I think we have something to learn here, obviously. Well, let's jump into the psalm this morning. And once again, we have this call to praise the Lord. We've been, and we've talked about it, book four is just so glorious in this mountaintop uh, uh, experience it gives us of calls again and again and again to praise the Lord, right? Hallelujah. We we sang in our, the, 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 the way we do the doxology in uh, that particular version of the doxology that we use with the alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. What you're saying when you say alleluia is just that. You're saying praise the Lord. That's the translation of alleluia. Praise Yah, praise you know Yahweh, praise the Lord. So this call to praise. And again, we're about to hear this great unfolding of a pretty dark and tragic story, the story of the people of Israel. But it begins nonetheless with praise. And we're going to see, in fact, that the way you praise the Lord, if you really want to praise the Lord, if you want Alleluia to be what comes out of you when you get bumped, then you need to know this story. Then you've got to see not only your people, i.e. the church, as a people just full of warts and flaws and sins, but you need to see it in yourself. Praise the Lord is the initial call of the psalm. And then, at least initially here, why? Praise the Lord. Now, now the, the, I think at this point, the, call, the psalmist is speaking to us, right? To the, to the reader, to the audience of the psalm, commanding us, praise the Lord, you his people, we could almost hear. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. So again, here the psalmist is speaking to us. And I mention that because the psalmist is going to turn here. The the psalmist is working in the psalm between two audiences. He's speaking to us to begin, then he's going to speak to the Lord, and then he's going to turn and speak to us, and then he's going to turn and speak to the Lord. So you'll catch that in in the psalm as we go. But the psalmist is commanding us to something. Hey, Affirmation Church, praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. For he is good. And we've referenced uh, um, weeks back, but I've done it before. Again, I go back to to Romans chapter 1, where in Romans 1, when Paul is detailing the sinfulness of man, he says they refuse to give thanks or to glorify God. But proclaiming to be wise, they became fools, and uh, down the road it goes. And the psalmist is pushing back on that right here. Here's a little telltale of how your spiritual life is doing. Do you give thanks to the Lord? Does your praise manifest itself in thanksgiving? Appropriate as we're heading into Thanksgiving week. That's not what I'm, is on my mind per se in, in this, hol- this sort of national holiday we have, but it's a good reminder to us to do it. But my point is just in general, does, does thanksgiving come forth from you? Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Do you see the goodness of God? The abundant mercy of God, for his mercy endures forever. Verse 2, who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Could you recount them? And we do it here when we, we, before uh, worship, before the call to worship, when we maybe share some testimonies, some praise reports of the Lord has done for us and 
But the psalmist is asking, if you're not giving thanks to the Lord, we might ask, why? Have you run out of things to give thanks for? Who can, who can thank him enough? Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can list them out? Who could declare all his praise? If you're not praising him, it's not because he hasn't given you sufficient things to praise him for. It's because you've run out of breath, perhaps. Or we've gotten distracted. That's generally my reason. I get distracted. I begin to take the blessings, the gifts of God for granted. I mean, that's, that's generally the reason why we're not filled with thanksgiving and praise continually is become, because the blessings of God become white noise to us. They just become the way things are. And then you fail to notice it. And that's, I guess that's understandable to some degree. It's an amazing thing how much we have been blessed. But let us hear the imperative, the charge, the call from the psalmist this morning. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to him. His mercy endures forever. He is good. You will never run out of things to thank him for or things to praise him for. So praise the Lord. So the psalm begins with that call and that imperative, and that's going to set the context for us because not only is he just good in and of himself, and he showers the rain on the just and the unjust. It just happens, right? We just, we enjoy the, God has set so many things just in the natural order of things that are just blessings that come to us. But what makes his goodness shine so brightly, the psalmist is going to, highlight is our sin. It, it's, it's not just that he showers this stuff on us. It's, it becomes more amazing when you consider the ones he's showering the blessings on. That, that's what really will drive this Thanksgiving if you've come to grips with that. And if you haven't, if, if, if your thanks and praise is tepid, then maybe that is an indicator that we haven't come to grips with who we are and what people we are from, right? The soil out of which we grow. We haven't come to grips with it, and therefore the goodness of God hasn't, you know, lit us on fire and excited us. Okay, well, the tension grows a little bit here. We have this call from the psalmist. Again, he's speaking to us here. Hey, praise him, thank him. You will never run out of things to praise him for. If you tried to, you couldn't list all the, the gifts he's done given to us. You'll never, you couldn't list all the things that are praiseworthy about God. And then verse 3, blessed are all who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. Okay, that, that's a little condemning. As we, you know, it's a little bit of a change. Like at first we're called to praise him and then all of a sudden he just drops that in there. And that's the first indicator, I think, that, okay, I might have a problem because I don't know about you, if you read that and you think, oh, good, I'm a blessed man or woman because I keep justice and I do righteousness at all times. Now, if you read that and you think, okay, good, thus far we're doing well in this psalm, I'm a blessed man or woman, okay, this sermon's not going to be for you, okay, so you're free to leave at this point. But for the rest of us who read that and gulp and go, oh, I don't keep justice as a policy, nor do I do righteousness at all times, then the rest of this sermon is for you. Now, in verse 4, the 
the audience changes. Now the psalmist is going to turn and he's going to, for a moment, direct his words to the Lord. And I, I think in some sense, he forgets about you and me. We kind of, if, initially he begins and he's thinking of us and he's calling us to praise the Lord and to remember him. And, and then he makes that statement and then, and then the tone, then his, his mind goes off and goes to the Lord. And he speaks to the Lord now in verse four. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. O visit me with your salvation that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inherent with uh, your inheritance. Now, he continues just for another verse or so. Yeah, well, let me just read six and seven because here he continues speaking to the Lord and then you'll see that it changed in eight. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Now notice in verse eight, nevertheless, he, now he speaks about God back in the third person. So in that little stretch, he's speaking to God. And then it's like he comes back to us and starts speaking to us again. And he's going to remind us of what we have done as the people, again, who grow out of the soil of the story of Israel. He's reminding us of our story. But we do have this little window here where the psalmist is taken. He's, he's, he's enraptured for a second, if you will. And he, his mind is drawn to the Lord. He knows the story that he's about to recount, and he has this call of this call of blessing to those who keep justice and do righteousness, and his mind now turns to his own need. It's like, I know the story that's coming, the story of the sinfulness of my people. Lord, remember me. We, picked, we talked about this last week, this business of remembering our need to remember and to remember that God remembers. And here the psalmist is asking God again, remember me like the thief on the cross. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Same exact thing here. Oh, remember me, oh Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. He's going to tell the story of God's people. And here the psalmist is asking an individual prayer, remember me, O Lord, when you bestow your blessing upon your people. That is, this, I know this story is not just about me. It, this, is a, this is a little bit of a pushback to the modern evangelical personal relationship with Jesus. On the one hand, it, it vindicates it because the psalmist is, is speaking personally. Remember me, O Lord. But remember me in what you are doing for your people. That's the part that generally evangelicals forget. We, we don't think of ourselves as part of a grand story that the Lord is doing with his elect or with his church, with his treasured people. We just tend to focus on the individual me part of this. And the psalmist has that. But remember me, O Lord, with the favor you have toward your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may benefit, of, uh, that I may see the benefit of your chosen one. So he sees himself. He knows the Lord is doing a work for a people and he wants to be part of that people and to enjoy the blessings and the salvation that the Lord is doing for them, that he himself might rejoice with the rejoicing that is going to be 
among the multitude of God's people. Remember me. He's going to ask two things of the Lord in this psalm. One is right there, remember me. And the second one is down in verse 47, from which I pulled the title of the psalm. So remember me, O Lord. And then down in verse 47, he's going to turn again to the Lord as his audience. Save us, O Lord. Remember me and save us. These are the two requests, if you will, that he makes in the psalm. Now, in between the two requests comes the grand story, the grand confessional, okay, as he recounts the story of his people, and it's an ugly story. The the psalmist is asking the Lord to remember him, and then he immediately turns, and he can acknowledge why this request needs to be made. Why is he asking the Lord to remember him? Why wouldn't the Lord remember him? Well, verse 6, for we have sinned. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. I I could understand why you wouldn't remember me. You know why? Because we didn't remember you. I could understand why you would forget us because we forgot you. We did not understand. Our foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, we became fools, all the language from Romans 1. And we did not understand, nor did we remember. Notice he wasn't there. But he wants to see the salvation of the people while he's willing to own the story of the people. Like, the people's story is my story. Their sin is my sin. I am no different from them. And we can remind ourselves of this when we read the Old Testament. I often do. Don't be careful. Their their sin looks cartoonish. It looks so obvious. Just remember, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, these things are written for you lest you do the exact same thing in your context. And the psalmist picks that up and he says, we sinned. I'm willing to place myself there. We sinned in the wilderness. Our fathers did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but they rebelled by the sea. Now, in verse eight, he comes back to himself, if you will. Now, I'm not saying this is unintentional, what he's writing, but whatever. In the psalm, he he snaps back to us. And now he's speaking to us about what God has done and what we have done in through our fathers in the wilderness. Nevertheless, and we're going to see this nevertheless again over in verse 44. And maybe maybe that is the word. Maybe I should have titled the sermon that. Nevertheless. Because that turns out to be the hero hero word of this entire psalm. The, The... the word of this psalm that we should take away with us today and walk out of here praising God for is the word nevertheless. We have sinned with our fathers. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. Our fathers didn't understand. Our fathers didn't remember, but rather we rebelled by the sea. Nevertheless, he saved them. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake that he might make his mighty power known. And then he recounts some of the salvation. We're going to come back again. He's going to recount the story and then come back again in verse uh, verse 44 with the nevertheless again. Now let's just think for a second 
about this long recounting of the sins. So here in verses 8 and following, here's all the things the Lord did in Egypt. He saved them. He made his power known. He rebuked the Red Sea. It dried up. They went through the depths. He saved them from the hand of him who hated him. He redeemed them from the hand of his enemy. The waters covered over his enemies. Not one of them was left. And they believed his words. And they sang his praise. They they did what this psalm is telling us to do. They did it. They saw his marvelous works, and you know what? They got out on the other side, and in Exodus 15, they sang the song of Moses, this wonderful course. What an awesome day that must have been, because remember, their backs were against the wall, literally against the wall of the Red Sea, with no hope, and the Lord fought for them and divided the Red Sea. And I mean, they thought they're done. And if you thought you're done, and all of a sudden you are delivered. I mean, just this explosion of joy. And so, yeah, they get out the other side of the Red Sea and they go and they praise. Wow, awesome. What a great story. Until verse 13. So we just come off of verse 12. They sang his praise. And then verse 13, they soon forgot his works. And they did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. So just this little bang, bang, bang. They forgot. So, I mean, how do you forget? <laughs> how do you forget after seeing that amazing display? And it's not that if you would have given them a quiz, they couldn't have told you what just happened. But when he says they forgot, and this is the scary kind of forgetfulness. It's not that you kind of forget with your mind, but it just gets out of your vision. It gets off your, your windshield. You know, it's not in your line of view anymore. It's there, but it's kind of in the recesses of your mind. It's there, but it doesn't affect how you think today. That was good for then, but now what about this? We have no meat. Oh, that was great then, but we have no water. Now what? It's like, well, don't you remember? And when they get to the promised land and they're facing giants and the 10, the 10 spies say, there's giants in there. We don't dare go in. And the people are like, yeah, yeah, you're, forget it. We're not going in there. Wait, there's giants in there? Oh, yeah, no, 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 bad idea. And Joshua and Caleb basically say, don't you remember? Don't you, don't you remember what the Lord did? It's not that they don't remember the act. It just has no bearing on today. So they soon forgot, and they did not wait for his counsel. They refused to be guided by him. They do what that the, the moron does in, in, uh, in James 4 when he, he says, I'll go to the city, I'll buy, sell, I'll come back, and, you know, I'll, I'll, and then I'll come back up here, and I'll resettle up here. And, and James says, you fool. You might be, it might be wiser to seek the counsel of the Lord first, to, to say, if he wills, I will do this and that. But no, they just rush ahead. Hey, let's get to the land. Let's go. Let's move on. We have plans and, and we're going to go. They forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. So they're, they're operating from the belly and they have desires and let's go. We want to satisfy them. And so we're told. And so he gave them their request. That is, he, he then you, you know what? Again, you, you want life without me, you forget, okay, I'm going to give you a taste of that. And so he sends leanness into their camp. 
into their soul. The story doesn't stop there. In verse 16, we have a new sin introduced, the sin of envy. They envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of the Lord. So not only have they forgotten the Lord, not only are they lusting, not only are they ambitious and following their own ambitions without seeking the counsel of the Lord who delivered them, now they're envying Moses and they're envying Aaron and the authority that they have. And the earth opens up and swallows some of them. And a fire was kindled in their company and a flame burned up the wicked. The story goes on in verse 19. They made a calf. So now add to the list of grievances here and of sins, the idolatry at Sinai, at Horeb. They made a calf and they worshiped the molded image and thus they changed their glory. The one thing they have, the only thing they have, the, their glory, Yahweh. They traded it for a calf, for a statue. The psalmist is not, the psalmist is not coloring this for us so that, hey, okay, we, we see how they messed up. But hey, you got to understand, no, no, no. He's exposing it. They traded their glory, that's what they did, into an image of an ox that eats grass. Verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous things in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Again, how how do you forget? You, you, You just let them slide into the background, and they're not taking the great and mighty works of the Lord as the lens through which now they will interpret the current problems. They forgot. So we see this asking God to remember, but understanding why he might forget us because we have forgotten him. We have not remembered him. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. He Had he not put Moses, his chosen one, to stand in the breach and to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. So once again, here's the mercy of the Lord. Just like he opens the Red Sea, in this case, he puts Moses in the middle between him and them because he's going to consume them. But he grants that Moses will rise up and request mercy. And in his love for Moses, he grants the mercy, the goodness, the abundant mercy of God. And so he didn't destroy them. And you think that would be great. But then verse 24, the story continues. They despised the land. They did not believe his word, but they complained in their tents and they didn't heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised up an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness. That's fine. You will not enter the land. You'll be scattered. And the story, frankly, I know it's hard to imagine. It gets worse because in verse 28, they joined themselves to another God, Baal of Peor. And they eat the sacrifices to the dead. They provoke God in his anger, so he sends a plague. But now Phineas stands up and he intervenes and the Lord relents and has mercy on them. The plague was stopped. And this was counted to Phineas for righteousness. Then verse 32, they angered him also at the waters of strife. And so it went ill with Moses on account of them. And they rebelled against his spirit. So he spoke rashly with his lips. Verse 34, they didn't destroy the people that God said to destroy. They didn't obey the Lord. Uh, They did not uh, destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them. 
but instead they mingle with the Gentiles. They were called to be separate, and they learned their works, and they served their idols, and this became a snare to them. And as if it could get worse, in verse 37, they even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons and shed innocent blood when they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with their blood. They were defiled by their own works and they played the harlot with their deeds. I mean, here's a guy who is not afraid to tell the ugly story of his people. And therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled and he abhorred, he, he, he turned his back on his own inheritance. He gave them into the hand of the Gentiles, of those who hated and ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection by their hand. Verse 43, many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Okay, so there's the, the ugly story. And this is only part of the story. We don't even get into the story of the kings and all of their ugliness. And the story that the prophets have to come and deal with and all that ugliness. And by the way, we don't get to the climax of the story when this God actually becomes flesh and they finally get their hands on him and then they crucify him. This is the ugly, ugly, ugly story of humanity. And it's not their story. Remember what the psalmist says, we have done this. This is our story. This is your story. This is my story. This is why we confess our sins weekly. You might, you might, if you were a stranger coming in here, or maybe we've even thought it ourselves, I don't know. You might say, my goodness, this, this, this constant attention to sin. Why so much on that? Well, this is why, because this is who we are. And it's so easy for us to make excuses, to make justifications, or to forget about it, get our minds on other. Who wants to confess their sins? Who wants to name the ugly things we've done? It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to do it to one another. It's uncomfortable to do it before God to actually have to say, this is what I've done. That's the ugliness of our sin. But the psalmist gives us a pattern here to say, it must be done. If you, are, if you are going to praise the Lord and give thanks for his abundant mercy, you will never understand the abundant mercy of God if you can't list it out your sins. And then, in verse 44, say, nevertheless. You list out your sins. You do as John does in Revelation 1 when he goes face down before Jesus as he ought to do, or Isaiah face down before the God who's high and lifted up and seated on a throne because you know you are a man or woman of unclean lips. You know that you deserve the sword of his judgment and you fall face down before him. But then you hear, nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. Is that story? But they sacrificed their own children to demons. Like, I don't know what you've done, but if any of you have sacrificed your own children to demons, you can identify with this. But most of us, it's like, okay, wow, that's, that's another level beyond what I've done. Yet, even to them, 
to this people. It says, nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry and for their sake, he remembered. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. We talked about that last week. Remember, God remembers. Don't forget. God doesn't forget his covenantal promise. And in this story, it should be shocking. Why wouldn't he want to forget these people? Why wouldn't he want to forget you? But as sinful as you are, nevertheless, he has regarded your affliction, he heard your cry, and for your sake, he remembered his covenant, and he relented according to the multitude of his mercies. That is, whatever oppressive hand he put upon them, he relented. He did not bring final destruction upon them because he remembered his covenant, his promises to them. And then in verse 47, he forgets about us again. And he's taken, his eyes are drawn back now, even in light of this and in light of his words to us that nevertheless, God has done this. He now is drawn back to prayer to God and again in exhortation. He began his exhortation with, Lord, remember me. And now in verse 47, it's not personal anymore, though it is, but it's corporate. Save us, O Lord our God. Like, save us. Like, this rotten story, which he's just confessed is his story, and all he can do is fall before God and say, save us, O God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name and to triumph in your praise. Save us, O Lord, that we might do what I've just commanded them to do, namely to praise you. Lord, you need to do it. You need to deliver us. And then concludes with, Again, a call back to us. Blessed be the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be that God, the God who is the God of nevertheless, the God who is a God of sinners, such as this psalm recount, uh, uh, tells us of. Blessed be the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say Amen. People of God, what do you say to this? Let us say amen. 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 Praise the Lord indeed. The psalm begins with the call to do it, and in the end, he's just doing it. Because God has been so abundantly merciful to us. We confess our sins not to wallow in them. The psalmist recounts this not just to wallow in it. The psalmist recounts this to drive us to praise. If you want to know the mercy of God, then reckon with your own sin. And then after you do it and you see the ugliness of your own character, hear the scripture say, nevertheless, I love you. Nevertheless, I will deliver you. Nevertheless, I send my only begotten son to be crucified so that you through him might become co-heirs of everything that is his. Contemplate that, and we will begin to get a glimpse of the everlasting and abundant mercy of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, though we hate to say it, though we hate to confess it, we hate to 
dredge up that which we try to cover up in our own souls and in our own hearts. Nevertheless, as the psalmist dredges up the ugliness of the old, old story, Father, he is reminded of how merciful you are. In remembering how we forgot, we remember that you remember. And we thank you that you have not forgotten. As forgetful as we are, as distracted as we are, as idolatrous as we are, you nonetheless do not forget us. And you love us. And you forgive us. And you save us. Save us, O Lord. Strengthen us as a church and us as individuals that we may see that glory that you have for your chosen ones. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.